Chapter Three of Feminism in Greek Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Lorenowicz. Feminism in Greek Literature by Frederick Adam Wright. Chapter Three: The Lyric Poets. Of the literature of the 7th and 6th centuries before Christ, the lyric, iambic, and elegiac poetry, we have only inconsiderable fragments. There are two reasons for the disappearance. In the case of the greatest names, Alcaeus and Sappho, the Romans preferred the adaptations of Horace to the originals. With most of the other poets, the general standard of morality in their verse is so low that they fell under the ban of the early church, and as we know, unreasonably enough in her case, Sappho was included with them, and her poems publicly burnt. But in the fragments that we do possess, there appears unmistakably the same mixture of sensual desire and cynical distaste for women which disfigures the late epic, until in this period it ends in sheer misogyny. In nothing is Aristotle's great doctrine of the golden mean more valuable than in matters of sex. The sexual appetite is as natural as the appetites of eating and drinking, and is necessary for that which is nature's sole concern, the preservation of the species. If the sexual appetite is wholly starved, the result is as disastrous to the race as the total deprivation of food and drink would be to the individual. If it is unduly fostered, nature revenges herself in the same way as she does upon those who exceed in the matter of food or drink, and abnormal perversities of every kind begin. In sex matters, the normal man and woman alone should be considered, the father and the mother of a family, and their opinion alone is of any real value. But unfortunately in literature, and especially in this Ionian literature, the normal person is the exception and most of the writers we now have to consider seem to have been unmarried and childless. The paucity of material, probably no great loss either in an artistic or a moral sense, has obscured the facts, but there seems little doubt that in this period literature was definitely used for the first time to degrade the position of women. The iambic meter was invented for the express purpose of satirical calumny, and the three chief iambic poets of the Alexandrian canon, Archilochus, Simonides, and Hipponax, in their scanty fragments all agree on one point. The chief object of their lampoons is woman. At the beginning of this period, the two sexes are fairly equal in their opportunities. At the end, the female is plainly the inferior. Sappho and Arana mark the turning point in literature, Living at a time when it had not been made impossible for women to write, they showed that a woman could equal or surpass the male poets of her day. The few fragments of Arana's verse that we possess, e.g. the epigram on the portrait of Agatharchus, and the pathetic elegy on the dead Baucis, reveal a talent at least as fine and strong as that of Alcaeus, while of all the Greek lyrists, Sappho, both in reputation and as far as we can judge in actual achievement, holds by far the highest place. Later ages, indeed, found it difficult to believe that Sappho was a woman at all. 
the scandal of male gossip was inspired by a genuine and pathetic belief that such a genius as hers must at least have been touched with masculine vices but in sappho's writings which are our only real evidence there is nothing distinctively mannish she is neither gross nor tedious in the technique of her art metrical skill the music of verse she is at least the equal of any poet who has lived since her day in thought and diction she is far superior to all of her contemporaries in dealing with the ionian poetry exact dates are impossible but the lyric age extends roughly from the middle of the seventh to the middle of the sixth century the earliest writer in order of time and in some ways the most important is archilochus the burns or villain of greece outlaw soldier of fortune poet the first man to introduce his own personal feelings into literature archilochus had his own special reasons for hating women archilocum proprio rabias armoid iambo and as he says he had learned the great lesson if any one hurts you hurt her in return betrothed to cleabule the daughter of a wealthy citizen of paros he found his marriage forbidden by the lady's father lycambes the father's reasons may be guessed even from the few fragments of archilochus that still remain but the poet turned abruptly from amorist to misogynist and spent the rest of his life in railing against his lost mistress and womankind in general both in love and war he is uncompromisingly frank he tells us how he threw away his shield beside the bush in battle but deuce take the shields i will get another just as good and at any rate i have escaped from death his love poems are equally free-spoken it is the actual image of his mistress that torments him when he cries with myrtle boughs and roses fair she used to delight herself and again all her back and shoulders were covered by the shadow of her hair but to his fierce spirit such love brings little comfort wretch that i am like a dead man i lie captive to desire pierced with cruel anguish through all my bones and the longing that takes the strength from a man's limbs it is that which overcomes me now soon his love turns to hate and loathing and he imputes to the woman the fault that is really his own was wronged i have sinned i and many another man methinks will fall like me to ruin his mistress now for him has lost her beauty no longer does your soft flesh bloom fair even as dry leaves it begins to wither like all women she is false and full of guile in one hand she carries water in the other the fire of craft to marry a woman now is to take to one's house manifest ruin the folly of men and the falsity of women seem to have been the themes of the animal stories which archilochus like aesop composed woman is the fox man is now the eagle now the ape but the fragments are too short for a certain judgment what remains indeed of archilochus is always tantalizing in its incompleteness of his epigrams for example only three are left here is a free translation of one of them miss high and mighty as soon as she became a wedded wife kicked her bonnet over the moon fortunately however we have preserved for us in herodotus a much longer specimen of archilochus's manner a real milesian tale the story of gyges and Candaules, 
the tale is handed down to us in herodotus's prose and it is impossible to disentangle the shares contributed by the ionian poet and the ionian historian nor is it necessary the story is typical of both Candales makes the initial mistake of being enamoured of his own wife and the second mistake of not believing Jaggis when he is enlightened on the subject of female modesty his folly naturally brings him to a bad end the story is interesting but it is especially significant when we compare it with the tale of the same Jaggis as told by plato there the sensual elements disappear the interest centers on the magic ring and the seduction of the queen and murder of the king for merely the hasty conclusion of the narrative the difference between the two stories is the measure of the difference between the feminist philosopher and the libertine turned woman hater but archilochus at least has once loved a woman our next poet simonides of amorgos seems to have been a misogynist from birth his work now only exists in fragments but it is so significant of a frame of mind that the two longest passages that survive deserve a verbatim translation the first runs thus women they are the greatest evil that god ever created even if they do appear to be useful at times they usually turn out a curse to their owners a man who lives with a wife never gets through a whole day without trouble and it is no easy matter for him to drive away from his house that fiend abhorred the foul fiend hunger moreover just when a man is thinking to be merry at home by god's grace or man's service the woman always finds some ground of fault and puts on her armor for battle where there is a wife you can never entertain a guest without fear of trouble again the woman who seems to be most virtuous mind you may well be the most mischievous of all her husband gapes at her in admiration but his neighbors laugh to see him and the mistake he is making every one will praise his own wife men are shrewd enough for that and then will talk scandal about his neighbors and all the time we do not realize that we are all in the same plight for as we said before this is the greatest evil that god ever created the other fragment the catalogue of women is longer and better known it begins from the first god made women's characters different into one kind of woman he put the mind of a pig lank and bristly and in her house everything lies about in disorder bedraggled with mud and rolling on the floor while she herself unwashed in dirty clothes sits in the mire and waxes fat the second woman god made out of a mischievous fox she is cunning in all things alike she knows everything all that is bad and all that is good often her speech is fair but often it is evil and her mood changes every day the third sort of woman was made out of a dog and she is the true child of her mother ever restless she wants to hear and know about everything she is always peering about and roaming around growling even though there is no one in sight a man cannot stop her with threats no not even if in sudden anger he break her teeth with a stone soft talk is useless too it is all the same even if she happened to be sitting among strangers a man finds her a continual and hopeless nuisance the fourth woman the gods in heaven made out of mud or rather they half made her and then gave her to man such a one knows nothing good or bad the only business she has sense enough for is eating 
even if god sends a bitter winter's day and she be shivering she never will draw her chair closer to the fire the fifth woman was made out of the sea and she has two minds within her one day she is all smiles and gladness a stranger seeing her in the house will praise her in all the world says he there is not a better or a fairer lady but another day she is insupportable to look at or to approach she is filled with fury like a bitch guarding her cubs savage to all alike friends and foes detestable even so the sea often stands quiet and harmless a joy to sailors in the summer tide and often again is driven to madness by the thunderous waves it is to the sea that such a woman is most like the sixth woman was made from an ass gray of hide and stubborn against blows though you use reproaches and force it is with difficulty you get her to give way to you and do her work satisfactorily she is always eating day and night she eats in her bedroom she eats by the fireside but if a man approaches to make love to her she comes forward quickly enough to welcome him the seventh was made out of a polecat a plaguy and grievous kind there is nothing fair or lovable in her nothing pleasant nothing charming and any man who comes near she fills with nausea she is a thief and annoys her neighbors and often she gobbles up the sacrifice herself without offering any to the gods the eighth woman was the daughter of a mare stepping daintily with flowing mane she shudders at the thought of any servant's work or labor she will never lay her hand to the millstone nor lift up the sieve nor throw the dung out of doors she won't even sit near the kitchen stove because she is afraid of the soot and she makes her husband well acquainted with adversity every day two or three times she washes every speck of dirt off her and anoints herself with unguents her hair is always luxuriant and well combed with garlands of flowers upon it of course such a woman is a fine sight for the men to see but she is a curse to her owner unless indeed he be a tyrant or a sceptred king who has a fancy to pride himself on such delights the ninth woman came from a monkey this sort is indeed pre-eminently the very greatest curse that god ever sent to men her features are shamefully ugly such a woman as she walks through a town is a mockery to all men she has a short neck and moves with difficulty she has no buttocks her legs are all bone alas for the poor wretch who holds such an evil thing in his arms but as for guile and tricks she knows them all and like a monkey she does not mind being laughed at she never renders any one a service but all day long this is what she is seeking and looking for how to do someone as much harm as she can the tenth woman was made out of a bee happy the man who gets her on her alone no breath of scandal lights but she brings a life of happiness and prosperity husband and wife grow old together in love and fair and glorious are her children famous among all women is she and a grace divine encompasses her about she takes no delight in sitting with other women when they are telling bawdy tales such women as she are the best and wisest given by god to men all the other kinds are a bane to men and by god's decree a bane they will always be and so the fragment ends all this is pure misogyny but it is interesting to notice the especial faults which our poet imputes to womankind they are chiefly the two vices which a surly master will always find in his servants gluttony and idleness 
they work too little and eat too much. We are far removed in this world from our feed the brute, and it must be remembered that in a Greek household, the work was hard, monotonous, and continual. There were no labor-saving appliances, for the hard work was chiefly done by women. Every mouthful of bread or porridge eaten in a Greek home had come into the house as a sack of dirty grain. First it was winnowed and cleaned by hand, then the grain was put into a small hand mill, and by a laborious process of pestle and mortar it was ground into flour. The flour was then made into dough, kneaded and baked, every process being attended with the maximum of manual labor and general inconvenience, borne by the woman of the house while the master strolled about the city. So also with the clothes and household fabrics. Every operation in their manufacture was done at home by the women. The master contented himself with buying the sheepskins, and, as Theocritus lets us see, often did that very badly, which he then handed to his wife. First the skins had to be washed and dried, then the wool was cut off and carded, then by a laborious process of spinning the wool was turned into yarn, and finally on a hand loom the yarn was woven into cloth, the same piece of stuff, so excellent was the workmanship, often serving for coat, blanket, and shroud. It is obvious, then, that an idle wife, if such a thing existed, or a wife who ate more than her share of the laboriously prepared bread, would be a great grief to her lord and master, who was himself too busy with the higher work of politics to attend to such things, and that the machinery of the household would be put very much out of gear. It may well be that Simonides was unfortunate in his choice of a helpmate, for as Hipponax, the third of this company, mournfully complains, it is hard to get a wife who will both bring you a good dowry and then do all the work. Hipponax, if we may judge him by some forty short fragments, was a thoroughly disagreeable person. He is always asking and being refused. He varies complaints with abuse or downright threats. Hold my coat, he cries, and I will knock out his eye. I've got two right hands, and I never miss when I throw. On the subject of women, he does not say so much as the other two for the range of his thought is almost confined to carnal delights. A fair sample of his style is this fragment. There are only two days in your life that your wife gives you pleasure, the day you marry her and the day you bury her. This insistence on the physical side of love runs through all the elegiac and lyric poetry of the age. Love to Mimnermus is a thing of secret kisses, of chambering and wantonness, and it depends alone on physical attractions. A young man is happy, for he is handsome and desirable. An old man is wretched, to women an object of scorn. The satiety that comes from excess of sensual pleasure is the main cause of the melancholy pessimism that broods over much of Ionian literature. Of Alcaeus and his Lycus, Anacreon and his Bathylus, Theognis and Cyrnus, it is unnecessary now to speak but it is difficult to believe such amiable apologists as Mr. Benek when they tried to show that a fine idealism was the inspiration of these relationships. Neither the character of the men's writings nor that of their time and country give much ground for such confidence, and if we seek the purity of love's passion, we must turn to Sappho. Among all the foulness of her time, Sappho shines out like a star. 
no loss in literature is so lamentable as the loss of the nine books of her poems that the alexandrian library possessed no treasure in literature is quite so precious as the fragments that various chances have preserved for us and luckily the number of those fragments is still increasing as will be seen by a comparison of the two best studies of sappho in recent years the exquisite collection of translations issued by mr wharton in eighteen eighty six and the brilliant monograph on the new fragments by mr j m edmonds in nineteen twelve even since that date fresh poems have come to light and we do not know what egypt may have yet in store in all fragments new or old there is an indefinable quality of personal feeling sappho it has been said has left us only a fragment of her work but it is a fragment of her soul her friend and rival alcaeus is a great poet but he lacks the fiery intensity of her inspiration which gives life even to the briefest phrase that some grammarian has quoted for a rare word take the lines that rossetti adapted like the sweet apple a which reddens upon topmost bough a top on the topmost twig which the pluckers forget somehow forget it not nay but got it not for none could get it till now like the wild hyacinth flower which on the hills is found which the passing feet of the shepherds forever tear and wound until the purple blossom is trodden into the ground or again this other dead dead in death below the ground bereft of breath silent alone the close-shut tomb enfoldeth thee to my songs thou wouldst not hearken and songless shalt thou be thou wouldst not love me here on earth in death thou shalt loveless be mr edmonds in his translations has kept much of the simple charm of the greek i have a little daughter rare that like the golden flowers fair my cleus i would not take all lydia wide no nor lovely greece beside for cleus and this a portion of a new fragment and often as her way she wanders and on gentle Attis ponders with sad longing love oppressed her heart devours her tender breast till she cries in pain o come to me for you and i know the burden of her cry since night which hath the myriad ears sends her word of what she hears across the severing main this tender simplicity is the soul of sappho and in her verse even a few words will suggest a picture come to me o love o love the inheritor enter in everywhere is swept and garnished everything is prepared the fire of my heart burns brightly all my body is food for thee and on my bosom thou shalt sleep the long night through surely no one save sappho has touched so closely the heart of love and poetry end of chapter three